Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we had an interesting listener suggestion. Well, at least I found it fascinating. And, well, I hope you do too. So, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours. So, choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say alcohol, that will be a single shot. And every time I say insurance, that'll be a double shot. All right, I hope your mind is set for today's episode. All right, we've got the business end out of the way, so we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So don your best Sherlock gear. Grab that big magnifying glass and let's dive into today's offering of The Man Who Just Wouldn't Die or The Plot to Kill Michael Malloy. <laughs> All right, I know there should be a mwahaha in there somewhere. Put one in there for me. All right, The Plot to Kill Michael Malloy for life insurance money seemed foolproof. Well, until the conspirators actually, well, tried it. The plot was conceived over a round of drinks. Because, you know, things conceived over a round of drinks always work out so well, don't they? One afternoon in July 1932, Francis Pasqua, Daniel Kreisberg, and Tony Marino sat in Marino's eponymous speakeasy, raised their glasses, sealing their complicity, figuring the job was already well half finished. I mean, how difficult could it be to push Michael Malloy to drink himself to death? I mean, every morning the old man showed up at Marino's place in the Bronx and requested another morning's morning if you don't mind in his muddled brogue and, you know, my really bad imitation of it. Hours later, he would pass out on the floor. For a while, Marino had let Malloy drink on credit Alas, he was no longer paying his tab. Business, the saloon keeper confided to Pasqua and Kreisberg, is bad. Pasqua, 24, was an undertaker by trade, and eyed Malloy's sloping figure, the glass of whiskey hoisted to his slack mouth. No one knew much about him, not even, it seemed, Malloy himself. Other than that he had come from Ireland... He had no friends or family, no definitive date of birth, although most people would guess him to be about 60. 
No apparent trade or vocation, beyond the occasional odd job, sweeping alleys or collecting garbage, happy to be paid in alcohol instead of money. He was, wrote the Daily Mirror, just part of the flotsam and jetsam in the swift current of underworld speakeasy life. Those no longer responsible derelicts who stumble through the last days of their lives in a continual haze of Bowery smoke. Why don't you take out insurance on Malloy? Pasqua asked Marino that day, according to another report. I could take care of the rest for you. Marino paused. Pasqua knew he'd pulled off such a scheme once before. The prior year, Marino had befriended a homeless woman named Maybelle Carson and convinced her to take out a $2,000 life insurance policy, naming him as the beneficiary. One frigid night, he force-fed her alcohol, stripped off her clothing, doused the sheets and mattress with ice water, and pushed the bed beneath an open window. The medical examiner listed the cause of death as bronchial pneumonia, and, well, Marino collected his money without incident. Marino nodded and motioned to Malloy. He looks all in. He ain't got much longer to go anyhow. The stuff is getting to him. He and Pasqua glanced over at Daniel Kreisberg. The 29-year-old grocer and father of three would later say he participated for the sake of his family. He nodded, and the gang set into motion a macabre chain of events that would earn Michael Malloy cult immortality by proving him nearly immortal. Pasqua offered to do the legwork, paying an unnamed acquaintance to accompany him to meetings with insurance agents. This acquaintance called himself Nicholas Mellory and gave his occupation as florist a detail that one of Pasqua's colleagues in the funeral business was willing to verify. It took Pasqua five months and a connection with an unscrupulous agent to secure, to secure three life insurance policies, all offering double indemnity on Nicholas Mellory's life, two with Prudential Life Insurance and one with Metropolitan Life Insurance. Pasqua recruited Joseph Murphy, a bartender at Marino's, to identify the deceased as Michael Malloy and claim to be his next of kin and beneficiary. If all win as planned, Pasqua and his cohorts would split $3,576, or roughly about $54,000 in today's dollars, after Malloy died as uneventfully and anonymously as he lived. The murder trust, as the press would call them, now included a few other Marino's regulars, including petty criminals John McNally and Edward Tin Ear Smith, so-called even though his artificial ear was actually made out of wax, tough Tony Bastone, and his slavish sidekick Joseph Maglioni. One night in December 1932, they all gathered at the speakeasy to commence the killing of Michael Malloy. To Malloy's undisguised delight, Tony Marino granted him an open-ended tab, saying comp competition from other saloons had forced him to ease his rules. No sooner did Malloy down a shot than Marino refilled his glass. Malloy had been a hard drinker all his life, one witness said, and he drank on and on. 
In fact, he drank until Marino's arm tired from holding the bottle. Remarkably, his breathing remained steady. His skin retained its normal ruddy tinge. Finally, he dragged a grungy sleeve across his mouth, thanked his host for the hospitality, and said he would be back soon. And within 24 hours, he was. Molloy followed this pattern for three days, pausing only long enough to eat a complimentary sardine sandwich. Ew, by the way. Marino and his accomplices were at a loss. Maybe they hoped Molloy would choke on his own vomit or fall and slam his head. But on the fourth day, Molloy stumbled into the bar and exclaimed, nodding at Marino, Boy, ain't I got a thirst. Tough Tony grew impatient, suggesting someone simply shoot Malloy in the head. But Murphy recommended a more subtle solution, exchanging Malloy's whiskey and gin with shots of wood alcohol. Drinks containing just 4% wood alcohol could cause blindness, and by 1929, more than 50,000 people nationwide had died from the effects of impure alcohol. They would serve Malloy not shots tainted with wood alcohol, but wood alcohol straight up. Marino thought it a brilliant plan, declaring he would give all of the drink he wants and let him drink himself to death. Kreisberg allowed a rare display of enthusiasm. He added, yeah, feed him wood alcohol cocktails and see what happens. Murphy brought a few 10-cent cans of wood alcohol at a nearby paint shop and carried them back in a brown paper bag. He served Malloy shots of cheap whiskey to get him feeling good and then made the switch. The gang watched, rapt, as Malloy downed several shots and kept asking for more, displaying no physical symptoms other than those typical of inebriation. He didn't know that he was drinking was wood alcohol, reported the New York Evening Post, and what he didn't know apparently didn't hurt him. He drank all the wood alcohol he was given and still came back for more. Night after night, the scene repeated itself, with Malloy drinking shots of wood alcohol as fast as Murphy poured them, until the night he crumpled without warning to the floor. The gang fell silent, staring at the jumbled heap by their feet. Pasqua knelt by Malloy's body, filling, the ne- filling his neck for a pulse, lowering his ear to the mouth. The man's breath was slow and labored. They decided to wait, watching the sluggish rise and fall of his chest. Any minute now. Finally, there was a long, jagged breath. Was it the death rattle? But then Malloy began to snore. He awakened some hours later, rubbed his eyes, and said, Give me some of the old regular, my lad. I'm just going to point out here, never try to drink the Irish under the table. <laughs> I'm just saying. Okay. Anyways, the plot to kill Michael Malloy was becoming cost prohibitive. The open bar tab, the cans of wood alcohol, and the monthly insurance premiums all added up. Marino fretted that his speakeasy would go bankrupt. Tough Tony once again advocated brute force, but Pasqua had another idea. Malloy had a well-known taste for seafood. Why not drop some oysters in denatured alcohol, let them soak for a few days, and serve them while Malloy was drunk? Alcohol taking during a meal of oysters. 
Pasqua was quoted as saying, will almost invariably cause acute indigestion, for the oysters tend to remain preserved. As planned, Malloy ate them one by one, savoring each bite, and washed them down with the wood alcohol. Marito, Pasqua, and the rest played pinnacle and waited, but Malloy merely licked his fingers and belched. I don't know about you, but I like him already. <laughs> At this point, killing Michael Malloy was just as much about pride as about a payoff. A payoff, they all griped, that would be split among too many conspirators. Murphy tried next. He let a tin of sardines rot for several days, mixed in some shrapnel, slathered the concoction between pieces of bread, and served Malloy the sandwich. Any minute, they thought, the metal would start slashing through his organs. Instead, Malloy finished his tin sandwich and asked for another. The gang called an emergency conference. They didn't know what to make of this Rasputin of the Bronx. Marino recalled his success with Maybell Carlson and suggested that they ice Malloy down and leave him outside overnight. That evening, Marino and Pasqua tossed Malloy into the backseat of Pasqua's roadster, drove in silence to Cretona Park, and lugged the unconscious man through heaps of snow. After depositing him on a park bench, they stripped off his shirt and dumped bottles of water on his chest and head. Malloy never stirred. When Marino arrived at his speakeasy the following day, he found Malloy's half-frozen form in the basement. Somehow, Malloy had tracked the half-mile back and persuaded Murphy to let him in. When he came to, he complained of a wee chill. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm liking this guy more and more. February neared. Another insurance payment was due. One of the gang, John McNally, wanted to run Malloy over with a car. Tenier Smith was skeptical, but Marino, Pasqua, Murphy, and Kreisberg were intrigued. John Maglioni offered the services of a cab driver friend named Harry Green, whose cut from the insurance money would total $150. They all piled into Green's cab, a drunken Malloy strewn across their feet. Green drove a few blocks and stopped. Bastone and Murphy dragged Malloy down the road, holding him up crucifixion style by his outstretched arms. Green gunned the engine, everyone braced, from the corner of his eye, Maglioni saw a quick flash of light. Stop, he yelled. The, club, the cab lurched to a halt. Green determined it had just been a woman turning on the light in her room, and he prepared for another go. Malloy managed to leap out of the way, not once, but twice. <laughs> on the third attempt, Green raced toward Malloy at 50 miles an hour. Maglioni watched through splayed fingers. With every second, Malloy loomed larger through the windshield. Two thuds, one loud, one soft. The body against the hood and then dropping to the ground. For good measure, Green backed up over him. The gang was confident Malloy was dead. But a passing car scared them from the scene before they could confirm it. It fell to Joseph Murphy who had been cast as Nicholas Mellory's brother to call morgues and hospitals in an attempt to locate his missing sibling. No one had any information, nor were there any reports of a fatal accident in the newspapers. Five days later, as Pasqua 
plotted to kill another anonymous drunk, any anonymous drunk, and pass him off as Nicholas Mellory, the door to Marino's speakeasy swung open and in limped a battered, bandaged Michael Malloy, looking only slightly worse than usual. His greeting? I sure am dying for a drink. <laughs> what a story he had to tell. What he could remember of it, anyway. He recalled the taste of whiskey, the cold slap of night air, the glare of rushing lights, then blackness. Next thing he knew, he woke up in a warm bed at Fordham Hospital and wanted only to get back to the bar. On February 21st, 1933, seven months after the murder trust first convened, Michael Malloy finally died in a tenement near 168th Street, less than a mile from Marino's speakeasy. A rubber tube ran from a gaslight fixture to his mouth, and a towel was wrapped tightly around his face. Dr. Frank Manzella, a friend of Pasqua's, filed a phony death certificate citing low bar pneumonia as the cause of death. The gang received only $800 from Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Murphy and Marino each spent their share on a new suit. Pasqua arrived at the Prudential office confident that he would collect the money from the other two policies, but the agent surprised him with the question, When can I see the body? Pasqua replied that he was already buried. Well, an investigation ensued, and, well, everybody began talking, and everyone eventually faced charges. Frank Pasqua, Tony Marino, Daniel Kreisberg, and Joseph Murphy were tried and convicted of first-degree murder. One reporter mused, perhaps the grinning ghost of Mike Malloy was present in the Bronx County Courthouse. The charter members of the murder trust were sent to the electric chair at Sing Sing, which, by the way, killed them all on the very first try. <laughs> on that note, my darlings, we've come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts about today's episode. You can, of course, always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you want to share your thoughts about today's episode, you're bored and you just need somebody to talk to, drop me a line because I do respond to every single email. And on that note, that is all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See ya, my heathens. I love ya. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.